This podcast is what I would call a state of the state for child welfare in Minnesota generally and for safe passage for children specifically. And it's essentially the speech that I gave at the Safe Passage Annual Fundraiser on October 13th of 2022. Let me start by first recognizing, kind of lifting up the part of the Safe Passage mission, which is to keep Minnesotans up to date on current child welfare issues. We do this through our weekly blogs, our podcasts, and our biweekly webinars, which feature interviews and presentations by child welfare leaders. So if you haven't done so, please visit our website and find out how you can join us for all of these events. So let me first update you on the legislative part of our mission. For the past two seasons, we have joined forces with like-minded organizations to pass or advance several bills all of them with bipartisan support, by the way, which in these times is an accomplishment in itself. In 2021, we were instrumental in passing a bill that will increase the number of relatives, BIPOC families, and non-traditional families who can become licensed foster parents. As part of the negotiations, though, we obtained an agreement that statewide standards would be developed for foster care recruitment and licensing, and that process is just underway now, and standards will become effective next July. In this year's legislative session, we worked with fellow nonprofit foster advocates on two bills, which you may recognize if you've been tracking us uh, from past years. And the first of these was Maya's Law, in which foster advocates took the lead and we supported, which requires that foster children be interviewed separately from foster parents and also that for the first time, child protection workers be required to record what they discovered during a family assessment, which, as many of you know, is a separate child protection track that has less stringent rules and makes fewer demands on parents. Unfortunately, one key provision of this bill was removed at the end, which was to interview children separately from the adults in child protection cases as well as those foster care ones. However, we and foster advocates reached an agreement with the Department of Human Services and representation of the counties to work out an agreement on language that will require these interviews to be conducted separately in most cases. We also got a bill nearly passed, nearly, to put income that is meant for foster children into trust accounts. So they will have some resources when they age out of the system. Now, the current practice is to divert this income for children to county coffers. And the sources of the income include survivor's benefits, which are based on the death or disability of a parent, or benefits based on the child's own physical or mental disability. And we think this will benefit about 800 fosters each year. Unfortunately, even though this bill passed both the House and the Senate, which is all you normally need, It won't go into effect yet because no bills this year with a budget impact got final approval. But we expect to complete this job in 2023. We also started a non-legislative initiative this year to analyze child fatalities from maltreatment from 2014 until this past June. We are doing this project in partnership with the Archbishop Ireland Justice Fellows Program, at the School of Law at the University of St. Thomas. And our Ireland Justice Fellow is Maya Schulte. Maya tenaciously identified 88 child deaths using media stories, court records, and county fatality reports. And on the latter, I want to give a shout out to four counties who were especially helpful with that information, which are 
Hennepin, Olmstead, Dakota, and St. Louis counties. Another source of information was an inventory that we discovered that is being maintained by the Department of Human Services. That inventory showed a total of 161 child deaths during the same period. Unfortunately, the department was not willing to share any deals, details with us, so we couldn't get data on these additional cases. But just knowing the number did confirm to us that an average of two children per month are being killed in Minnesota by their parents or caregivers, and also that only slightly more than half of these murders are picked up on by the media. So the upshot is that before the end of the year, we will be releasing a report on our findings with lots and lots of data for those who want to delve into the details. Uh, but even if you get it and only read the executive summary in a case study or two, I am confident that you will be stunned. You will be incredulous at the kinds of circumstances that we routinely leave children in and that you'll conclude along with us that there is minimal accountability in Minnesota for violent parents and also will conclude that this has to change. So let me share with you a preview of some results. Nearly 70% of cases had prior child protection history, and that compares to roughly what you usually see as 50% nationally, which kind of suggests that Minnesota doesn't respond to imminent threats to children with the same urgency as other states. We also found that 28% of cases had a history of domestic violence, which included seven children who were killed during a domestic assault. And that kind of tells us that if child protection and domestic violence programs worked closely together, they might be able to better protect both the mother and the child. And then in addition, one in 10 children were killed in foster care, and all but one of those was in a kinship placement. So that demonstrates the kind of reason that we've been working hard to establish standards in this area. So let me put a face on these statistics. The family history with child protection for one eight-year-old boy that I will call TD goes back 15 years when his mother was one of three adults who held down a child and beat them. This is an older sibling of TD and resulted in their felony convictions. Since that time, 10 reports were screened into child protection, which led to a number of findings, including that there was sexual abuse by three different relatives. TD's siblings ran away repeatedly to escape abuse described in the records, such as their mother holding down their hands and hitting their hands with a hammer, but they kept being returned home. TD was examined twice by child maltreatment specialists, medical specialists, who found old and some still healing wounds, but TD too continued to be returned to his mother until last winter when she forced him to stay in a garage overnight in sub-zero temperatures and he froze to death. And despite all of this, the surviving siblings were still left with their mother until finally, 17 months later, she was charged with his murder. Another eight-year-old, A.H., we'll call her, was isolated for seven months by her father and stepmother, using COVID as an excuse, during which time she was starved, beaten, tied with her hands behind her back, and taped inside a sleeping bag, and put in confined spaces as long as a day at a time. Then the mother, who had 50-50 custody, just pleaded with Child Protection to investigate, but they said she had no proof of maltreatment, despite the fact that they had a recent find in themselves 
of severe physical abuse of her brother and the fact that isolating a child like this is a big red flag for torture. Then local law enforcement was called to the house 31 times, but they never insisted on seeing the child, even after neighbors gave them recordings of the girl screaming. The mother also pleaded with the courts to help her enforce her custody rights, but they wouldn't because of a technicality with her paperwork, and no one offered to help her correct that technicality. So at the end, A.H. weighed just 45 pounds, and she was beaten to death and strangled. So these stories of T.D. and A.H. aren't outliers. They illustrate patterns that we saw again and again throughout the data. And that shows us, you know, at least two things. First, many of these fatalities could have been prevented. Secondly, they demonstrate what we've said repeatedly, which is that the attitude of child protection has changed dramatically over the last 25 years from gathering information and taking action if they suspected abuse to actually trying to avoid finding out what happened and looking for every possible reason to not take any action. Now, our mission at Safe Passage is to restore an appropriate balance between the interests of the parents and those of the child. And while this pendulum began to move back towards the interest of the child in Minnesota a bit due to the efforts of Safe Passage and a handful of our partners like Foster Advocates, we still have a long way to go. So it's critically important that we continue to have the support of all of our supporters And uh, in addition to just donating, which you can always do on the website, here's a few things that you can do to help. First, if you're a subscriber, watch for our emails, especially during the state legislative session, that ask you to contact your legislators about bills that we are promoting or supporting. You can just, you know, click on the link and it sends a message to your own senator and representative, and you can also personalize it if you like. So sending these emails alone will make a huge difference. And secondly, just sign up to volunteer with us as a child advocate. It's easy and it's amazing the difference one person can make. So finally, COVID permitting, we will once again have an in-person advocate stay at the legislature in 2023. So... We invite you to help with this event yourself. Come on down to the Capitol. It's really energizing and really effective. So finally, just help us spread the message by liking and following our social media channels. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. It's free and easy to do. So I just want to thank our listeners in the end here and our supporters of all kinds for your interest. It just means a great deal to us that you continue to encourage us in this work. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at Safe Passage for Children. Dot org. There you can sign up for our email list, 
Read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.